Hello, I'm Norma Columbus. Welcome to the Norma Columbus Lifestyle Podcast, a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. Thank you for listening. The Bowling Alley, Lease Saskatchewan, established 1962. It's hard to imagine now, but at one time, Leask had several eating establishments. Hungry patrons could dine at the Café in the Windsor Hotel, John and Helen Pompu's lunch counter, the Paris Café, or at the restaurant in the bowling alley. There are certain things I remember clearly about the bowling alley from when I was a teenager. There was a signature scent of businesses of the day, cigarette smoke mingled with the aroma of fried food. The sound of pool balls clanking together and the bowling balls hitting the hardwood and thundering down the lane filled the air. The thought of an unfortunate gutter ball and the sound of bowling balls rolling on the ball return and banging into each other lingered. To me, a strike sounded like someone was splitting wood and with the clatter of dishes, people socializing, music playing on the jukebox and the chimes and bells of the game machines, it was a noisy place at times. Employees. The bowling alley employed people from many different walks of life. More than one generation of a family worked at the bowling alley. I don't have a complete list, but check my blog for the list of names of people that contacted me or that I know worked there. The Farmer's Dell Restaurant and Bowling Alley. Businesses in small towns frequently offered various services under one roof, as that was the only way they could survive. I refer to the business as a bowling alley, which includes the bowling, restaurant, and pool areas. Louis Ezevitsky built the Farmer's Dell Restaurant Bowling Alley, a 60 by 110 foot structure on First Avenue in 1962. It was quite the attraction. The facility boasted six bowling lanes, five pool tables, and a restaurant. The building, constructed from cinder blocks, sported light green exterior paint. Gray tile covered the floor throughout and a wood paneled wall separated the bowling lane from the pool room. Louis was born in 1902 in Hungary and came to Canada in 1924. His wife Mary followed in 1927. Louis worked in bush camps and farmed in various locations in Saskatchewan, British Columbia and Ontario. Him and Mary had one child who sadly passed away at one year old in 1928. The couple returned to Saskatchewan and purchased two lots in Leask, one for a house and garage and the other for fruit trees and a large garden. They sold their surplus produce to local stores. The Hubs confessed that as a kid, he and several accomplices stole crab apples from Louis's yard and Louis chased them with a broom. I never wondered about their story until now, even though Louis and Mary's former home is across the alley from ours. Those crabapple trees are still there for the hubs to see every day. That could be karma, keeping him on the straight and narrow so he doesn't return to a life of crime. Louis and Mary sold the bowling alley to Lloyd Geisler in 1968, and Lloyd sold it to Ray and Glass Fisher in 1969. Mary died in 1970 and Louis in 1980, leaving their house vacant for several years. 
Since the hubs confessed his past indiscretions, I admit that my older sister and I snitched lilacs from Louis's yard for my wedding in 1981. There were no longer there, but taking the flowers still felt shady. After 40 years, I finally got that off my chest. In my defense, it was all my sister's idea. Although I don't know why I didn't have anything for the deck table decor the day before the wedding, she has a better eye for decorating than I do, and I think she thought the tables looked too plain. So we headed out on a crime spree. Ray's Bowling and Billiards. Fishers operated the facility as Ray's Bowling and Billiards. Gladys's brother, Jerry Heimgner, and his wife Shirley moved to Lee's to manage the business. Maggie Toth was the cook and restaurant manager. When Jerry and Shirley weren't available, the restaurant workers looked after the pool and bowling customers. The bowling alley was open evenings and on Saturday nights. The stores were also open on Saturday nights, so it was a happening little town. In 1974, Wayne Russell bought the business and operated it with Maggie Toth as restaurant manager. Barbershop. Jerry, a barber by trade, set up a shop in the southwest corner of the building. When he started cutting hair, an adult haircut was a dollar, a student paid 75 cents, and kids were 50 cents. His shop didn't have a door, but it had two windows, one facing the pool room and one viewing the restaurant area. A barber's chair, shampoo sink, mirror, cupboard for tools, and two chairs for waiting patrons completed the decor. Jerry still owns his original barber's chair, a 1950s model with a porcelain base and skirt. After Ray and Gladys sold the business, Jerry continued to manage it and cut hair there until 1975 when he moved to the barbershop he had built on Main Street. The young people loved the jukebox, and when the serviceman came to change the 45 records out, he would sell Wendy the used records, such as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, for 10 cents. Wendy was Maggie's daughter, and she worked there as a waitress and a pin setter. Bowling. There was a counter where you paid and rented bowling shoes. A four-foot wall divided the bowling area from the restaurant. Every two lanes shared a scorekeeper's table, ball return, and a seating area with fiberglass benches. Most patrons bowled five-pin with the small black balls. The large multicolored balls with finger holes, or for 10-pin bowling. I bowl there a few times, but I have more memories of gutter balls than strikes. I couldn't throw hard enough to hit the pins, as I failed miserably at any sport that involved throwing for some reason. A gutter ball and a strike are two very different sound memories, despair or triumph. My maternal grandfather, George Brad, became an avid bowler after retiring to Leesk. A men's and ladies bowling league were in full swing in the 1960s and 70s, and Grandpa did the bookkeeping for the league. He took bowling seriously, going so far as to construct a practice lane in his basement. I never knew anyone else that had a bowling lane in their basement. Every Sunday after Mass, aunts, uncles, and cousins gathered across the street at Grandma and Grandpa's house. Everyone enjoyed coffee or tang, thick-sliced cheddar cheese, soup crackers, and sweets. While the adults visited, us kids looked for ways to amuse ourselves, occasionally sneaking to the basement to stare in awe at the bowling lane. We were usually summoned 
upstairs before setting even one toe on the hardwood. The lane, with thick black padding at the end to stop the balls, seemed big then, but in reality it fit into a bungalow-style house, so it wasn't that big. Mom was on a ladies' bowling team with Grandpa as the coach. It must have been serious business if they had a coach. League bowling was on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday nights. Usually all the lanes were busy, and although it was competitive, it was mainly a fun social activity with trophies and pins given out at the end of the season. When I was about 11, I stayed in town after school for a sports practice. It was a big deal for a farm kid to stay in after school. After finishing at the school, a friend and I went to the bowling alley and hung out with the pin setter. Meanwhile, my dad came to pick me up, and he looked all over town. In his words, all over hell, but couldn't find me. When I surfaced and ran into him, he was not as pleased to see me as I had anticipated. The rules were the same as they are now. You were not allowed on the lanes and street shoes. If you didn't own a pair of bowling shoes, you could rent a pair. Anyone who has gone bowling remembers shelves of rental shoes with the size boldly displayed on the heel. God help you if you were trying to uh, disguise your size of your feet. Francis Benoit, a local fellow, worked at various businesses over the years, doing odd jobs. When Jerry and Shirley arrived in Leesk and went to check out the place, Francis was there and seemed to be involved in the discussions. So Jerry thought Francis was part owner. Working in the bowling alley gave Francis a strong sense of purpose. He set pins, lugged empty pop bottle cases, and unloaded supplies. Everyone knew him and remembered him and his love of Pepsi, or Pessy. During a game, balls barreled down the lanes, striking the pins and propelling them in all directions. Some players threw hard, and if they weren't paying attention, a pin setter could get hit by a flying pin. A dent in the roof stood as testament to this. Francis often set pins, and Jerry had to take him to the Shelbrook once for an x-ray when he got hit. The bowling alley only used human pin setters. In the 70s, the owners purchased automatic setters, but they were never installed. There was a foot pedal that activated metal placement pins on the floor. The setter would set up the pins and then put the balls on the return track. When the balls came back, the player knew it was safe to throw again. There was some back-and-forth posturing that went on behind the scenes. Impatient players threw before the setter was ready, trying to time it so that the ball arrived just as the setter finished the last pin. In response to this aggression, pin setters retaliated by letting the ball go from a lower point on the return ramp so that the balls wouldn't make it up the ramp at the other end and the player would have to go and retrieve them. A particularly annoying pin setter would lift up the center pin as the ball was coming straight for it, allowing the ball to go through without hitting any pins. The setter sat on a ledge in the dimly lit area between the lanes and hid their legs behind the ball return slope. Setters usually worked two lanes at a time, but did as many as four if required. Weekends and bowling league nights were the busiest and the best time for pin setters to make extra cash. Pool, a four-foot fluorescent light fixture, illuminated each table. Cue racks, scoreboards, and ashtrays 
hung on the walls among cigarette and pop posters. Seating was available along the wall. The loser paid for the game. If groups played poker or pee pool, they paid the winner and the winner paid for the game. Nikki Sally, another memorable local character, helped out in the pool area. When it wasn't busy, he loved to teach local teens to play pool. He felt a strong sense of ownership of the billiards area and closely watched over it. The names of some of the local pool sharks tossed in my direction include Murray Stevens, Barry Pierce, and Bruce Juggy Fiddler. Pinball, shuffle, pinball shuffleboard and bumper pool provided additional entertainment. The restaurant. When you entered the building, a display counter for chocolate bars, chips, candy, and cigarettes with a cash register perched on top sat to the left. A pop cooler was situated adjacent to the counter. The kitchen was 20 feet long by 12 feet wide and was equipped with a combination grill and burner stove, deep fryer, fridge, freezer, and sinks, but no dishwasher. A low counter with six red vinyl and chrome stools, basic chrome and pedestal table and chair sets made up the customer seating area. The restaurant had the capacity to seat about 40 people. A daily special was served on weekdays. The restaurant was known for its signature bowling alley chicken, which was pressure cooked KFC style. When Jerry and Shirley first started, they purchased chicken seasonings from the previous owner. Eventually, Maggie, Toth, and Jerry developed their own blend of herbs and spices, which remains a closely guarded secret. They catered to local events, providing individual chicken dinners and takeout boxes. What did things cost back then? And what were the wages? In the 60s and 70s, 50 cents went a long way. Pool was 10 to 25 cents, bowling 50 cents, shoe rental 25 cents, pinball 10 cents, or three games for a quarter. Jukebox, you got three songs for a quarter. Chicken snack for a dollar. French fries, 25 cents for gravy was extra. Coke was 17 cents a bottle and eventually increased to 32 cents. Chips, 15 cents. A chocolate bar, 25 cents. Get a pack of cigs for 75 cents. Staff hourly wage was $1.05 to $2, which was minimum wage at the time. Pin setter wage was initially 10 cents a game. Challenges. Interest in the activities the facility offered waned. The customer base grew smaller, and of course the income decreased. There were more home entertainment options, and the population was more mobile, often traveling to larger centers on the weekends. It was hard to keep ahead of expenses. The overhead on such a large building was crushing. Whenever there was any additional money, the leaky flat roof always needed repairs. In the 70s, the building was sold to Peter Bell, then twice more after that, including to Charlie Mack of the Paris Café, but it was never reopened. The gentleman who owned the building after Peter had a kitchen fire in 1975, causing damage to the interior. The equipment and furniture were eventually sold. The lanes were cut into sections, loaded onto a flat deck trailer, and unceremoniously hauled away. Eventually, the building became the property of the village. Lease Sales and Service Norman Maddock and Melvin Coleman purchased the building in 1982 for a new business, Leask Sales and Service, an automotive repair shop. They removed the roof and the wall 
between the bowling and pool areas and built the wall six feet higher in the front third of the building for their shop. A new back wall with two overhead doors was added and the outside walls in the rear two-thirds of the building were left standing at their original height. This open area in the back was used for parking and storage. They installed a peak roof and shingled it. White siding was added to the top of the outer walls where they had built it up. In 1992, the village of Lease purchased the building for a maintenance shop and it remains in use today. The exterior and roof were redone in beige metal siding. End notes. The business world evolves. New ideas are implemented and ideas from the past are reintroduced to a new generation. In early years of this country, general stores were popular. Then specialty stores became a big deal. Shopping preferences went back to general stores with all shopping needs available under one roof, just on a larger scale, like Walmart. I wasn't around when the first general stores existed, but I remember when some of the big box stores opened and people were excited about one-stop shopping. Although the bowling alley was only in operation for a dozen years, it left its mark on memories of many. One of people's fondest memories is of the chicken and french fries cooked to perfection and of the thick milkshakes. Friends to visit with, games to play, crispy chicken, golden brown french fries, coleslaw, and thick brown gravy. The stuff dreams are made of. Man, those were the days. Now you can't even look at a chicken for a dollar. There's a part of me in every story I write, but I could never pen this type of story without help from the community. Thank you to Jerry and Shirley Heibner, Wendy Toth Neville, Maggie Toth, Norman Maddock, and Murray Stevens, for contributing to this, pro this project. It's awesome to work with people who share my cherished memories. Thank you so much. Visit my lifestyle blog for episode pictures and links to my garden and published works pages, food blog and gift shop. My website address is in the episode notes. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is supported by Conexus. Does money spark joy in your life or cause you stress? If you said stress, you're not alone. For 42% of Canadians, their biggest stressor comes from money. At Conexus, they care about your financial well-being. Money doesn't have to be stressful, and Conexus is here to help. The Conexus hashtag Money Talk blog provides expert advice, tips, and solutions for all life stages and events. Getting married, buying a house, budgeting, saving, they cover it all and more. And did I mention it's free? Check it out today at ConnexusMoneyTalk.ca and start feeling confident and stress-free about your money. The Saskatchewan Podcast Network is supported by Direct West. Is marketing getting in the way of running your business? Direct West has a local expert team right here in Saskatchewan that will work with you to build your website exactly how you imagine it. Let them help you improve your online presence and head to directwest.com to learn more.